Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It is Tuesday, January 16th. We mark a decade since 27,000 gallons of jet fuel leaked from an underground tank at the Navy's Red Hill facility. It has not been recovered. We reflect on the risk to our aquifer and the status of the tanks. We talk state energy goals. Is Hawaii on track to produce 100% clean energy by 2045 or not? A new report sheds some light on where we stand. And we look at legislative priorities for our public schools following the Lahaina wildfire and spending missteps by the Department of Education. Plus, we talk civil discourse as we come off the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, working at peace. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It was on January 13, 2014, that the Navy called to report a massive leak of jet fuel from one of its 20 underground fuel storage tanks up at Red Hill. Routine maintenance had just been completed on tank number five, but an estimated 27,000 gallons leaked while it was being refilled. This past Saturday, the Honolulu Board of Water Supply marked the day with a blessing at a new monitoring well site near the Salt Lake Community Center. Reflecting on the 10th anniversary of the spill and calls by environmentalists back then to close the site because of the risk, Manager-in-Chief Engineer Ernie Lau says the next decade will be key. The tanks are now drained of more than 100 million gallons of fuel, and this week the remaining fuel in pipes is starting to be removed. Lau estimates uh, 200 million gallons of fuel have leaked from the Red Hill tanks over its 80-year life. He's not about to reopen the Halava shaft until we want, uh, till we know more. He fears that doing so will draw contaminants into the drinking water of much of Honolulu. He's drawing the line on the military's responsibility to this community after not acknowledging the risk to our drinking water until people began getting sick two years ago. And he has had many sleepless nights over what's in our water as a result of spills at Red Hill. It's destined to be shut down permanently. There is no reason to keep information regarding the history and experiences of this facility over its 80-year life confidential. It doesn't need to be redacted because this is no longer an op- going to be an operational facility in a few years. Uh, so it's a great opportunity for the Navy and the Department of Defense now to just open up all the information they have unredacted uh, to us and to the regulators and to the community so we know exactly what we're dealing with. So come clean with the past spills. I mean, you have some inkling of how much might have been spilled every year you know, over its life. And I, I understand that there's uh, some records that indicate that maybe there was a spill back in the 40s of about a million gallons or so? Uh, there, there's some rec- uh, record, and I think that's about 1.3 million based on a recollection of a former uh, employee of the Navy. And that's documented in, in uh, Department of Health uh, reports to the Department of Health. And that's why I think the, uh, the number right now is closer to a million gallons. Uh, initially, we had uh, pointed to maybe seven or eight different documented releases that we could at least point to our report or uh, some kind of document, 180,000. The Navy's own risk and vulnerability assessment they did a number of years ago, their consultant estimated that there could be ongoing leaks of 5,400 gallons a year from the entire facility that they're not able to detect, too small to detect. So you multiply that over 80 years, you're over 460,000 gallons, add that to the 1.3 and you come up to close to 2 million. And so that's what we're going to have to deal with over this next decade and beyond is the cleanup. You know, where did the stuff go? And that's the question. It's already impacted the aquifer in the area. You know, we know below the tanks and in the vicinity of the tanks, it's petroleum hydrocarbons and other things are being detected in the groundwater of the aquifer itself uh, in Halava Valley. And we think also into uh, Mauna Loa Valley to a certain degree. So the... So we need to better understand how it's moving, where it's located, at what depths, uh, and what's there. Uh, So 
again, the, I, I repeat, the opportunity is, there's a great opportunity for the Navy to uh, build trust by coming, like you say, coming clean with the full history of this Red Hill facility over its 80-year history. Sadly, like you said, it could have been avoided or, or, or people had to get hurt before the pleas were heard. It's unfortunate that it had to get to that place. Uh, I believe it could have been avoided. I think the another, maybe a, a positive out of all of this is how the community has come together on this issue. Uh, because, you know, water is life. Everybody needs water to survive, safe drinking water. Uh, whether you're a Kanaka Maoli or not, whether you're young or old, we all need water. And I think that the thread of water is life has resonated throughout our community and mobilized our community. I, I think it's something that we w would like to hope that would continue uh, for decades and even more because it, it then provides us maybe the ability as a community to even address other issues that are going to be before us for generations, the issues of climate change and how we as a community come together to deal with that. And then we are at a point where a lot of the military leases are also uh, up for negotiation, so certainly that's something to, to consider going forward. I think we should use all opportunities to, to leverage, the, to encourage our military to be environmentally responsible, to clean up their mess, to protect the Aina, uh, and protect our Vi. And uh, one more thing before I forget, you folks also filed a claim against the military for uh, the impacts of what we've just seen happen here. There was a statutory deadline for filing this, uh, what we call, they call a Federal Tort Claims Act claim. There is a two-year statute of limitations, so we, we felt it's necessary to preserve our rights to pursue the Department of Defense to reimburse us for all the impacts uh, created by the Red Hill facility. Do you think we will get to a point where we will reopen the Halava shop? Uh, at this time, Catherine, I, I don't know. Uh, what is missing is we really don't understand what's really happening deep underground in the aquifer, uh, how things are moving, what's in the aquifer. If we turn on our pumps at Halava Shaft, Halava Wells, or IAO Wells, are, are we going to create inadvertent problems for the future? And and I think Red Hill's a lesson uh, for all of us is a decision made almost a century ago is now impacting generations to come. Uh, so decisions and whether we can safely turn on those three shut down uh, BWS wells, that I also weigh how could that impact future generations. In the meantime, we're looking for other sources that are beyond what we feel is beyond the reach of contamination out of Red Hill. Um, we have to pursue that while we're waiting for the investigation by, by the U.S. Navy to proceed uh, to give us a greater level of understanding what's happening underground. That was Ernie Lau, Chief Engineer of the Board of Water Supply, reflecting on uh, 10 years uh, of a spill that happened at Red Hill. Uh, where 27,000 uh, gallons leaked from one of the t underground tanks. Marty Townsend was head of the Sierra Club Hawaii at the time of the 2014 spell. She says she is bitter about the experience. At the time, she was called an alarmist, talking about the threat to the environment that the tanks posed. We also talked to Wayne Tanaka, the current director, who may have a tougher fight ahead, but we start with Townsend. It's really tough to sit here 10 years later and know that if we had started sooner in the remediation of the Red Hill fuel tanks, um, we could have saved so many people from so much hardship. But because we foolishly trusted the military, because the military did not take their obligation seriously, we are in this situation where people now have, you know, lifetime, lifelong illnesses, lifelong trauma that was 100% preventable. I try to focus as much as I can on the future and what we can do. I mean, it is true that we, we, it's at least good that the tanks are being drained and will soon hopefully be closed, cleaned up and closed. Um, and 
But for the poisoning of 93,000 people and the public outcry that came from that, the Navy would still be pushing for the tanks to be in operation until 2045, which is absolutely ridiculous. So, I mean, I'm trying to focus now on what we can do going forward, the lessons that we can learn, um, and the ways in which we can try to minimize further damage. Reality is, is the risk is not gone, right? There is still quite a bit of fuel, sludge, and other contaminants in the tanks and around the tanks. You know, the pollution that we are finding now in the water, a lot of it it was unexpected. It was older leaks. And so we need to brace ourselves for further bad news about the state of our aquifer. At the same time, I think, you know, we start now on figuring out how to clean up. And, you know, I... I can envision a future where Hawaii is the world's leader in water remediation. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, the military, the U.S. military has been a plague on the planet. They have uh, a, a huge harmful footprint all around the world. And so Hawaii has a role to play, a service to provide to the world if we can figure out how to effectively recover from this kind of occupation. And then, Wayne, you are leading the charge now. Uh, You know, we don't know where possibly up to two million gallons has leaked uh, into the environment. Uh, And the next 10 years may be difficult ones. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the healing of our, of our lands, of our waters, it's going to take decades. This is a generational, multi-generational um, journey that, that we're on. And it's, it's super important, you know, at, even as we look forward to remember what we've gone through for the last 10 years, the, the, the lies, the gaslighting, um, uh, the blind deference to, to the military. And remember that ultimately it was the community stepping up, the community, you know, get, like coalescing and fighting for our home and for our future uh, that got us to this, you know, this really historic point. You know, I, I would not have expected it to have, to have been able to come this far. So, you know, however we can remember, remind our future counterparts, or, you know, that um, we, we can no longer we just blindly accept, you know, what the military says. And then we are just a stone's throw from where they're going to be putting in a new monitoring well. Uh, because they want to see if it's coming down here and that they think this might be a good indicator spot if the 200 million gallons, you know, where it's migrated to. Um, What are your thoughts about that? Because, I mean, I know a a number of the groundwater wells that the military has put in, they have found petroleum. As Marty said, this is kind of like the the things that we hate having read about. You know, we knew that if there is a release into our aquifer, it would be very difficult to track, that we need a much more robust network of monitoring wells, of sentinel wells. You know, the military was was supposed to come up with a contaminant fit and transport model as part of the 2015 order on consent. This is 2024. We still don't have a working groundwater model, much less a contaminant um, transport model. So it's now it's going to take millions of dollars of wells, of years and uh, years of, of construction and monitoring and testing uh, just to make sure we don't, you know, we don't suck this poison into our, into, our, into our pipes and into our taps. That was the Sierra Club's Wayne Tanaka and Marty Townsend. We also heard from a military wife whose family was impacted by the 2021 spill. Lacey Quintero says from the first day that they moved into base housing, they began to get sick and they didn't understand why. Really, it was a mystery. We didn't know. That was our first experience. We moved into housing on Hickam. And that is where we got violently ill. Um, All of our family members, our health took a downturn so quickly. And it wasn't until the end of November that we found out why. This was completely preventable on so many levels. That's one of the things that I think haunts a lot of people is that many of the activists who were trying to you know, trying to prevent something like this from happening, probably feel some personal responsibility. And, you know, as somebody who is impacted, I don't hold the activists responsible. I know that everyone's doing what they can, but it was preventable. Um, And unfortunately, just not in time to save the 2021 families from it. You have since moved off base. What are your thoughts about the draining of the tanks? Because they were able to drain them safely, but, you know, there's still a concern about the other spills. 
that have happened over the many decades and where all of that fuel went. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I'm really grateful to be in a home that has not been contaminated by these prior fuel spills. But even so, you know, as I've moved off base, recovering out in the community, I still worry every single day about the water for the whole island because we know the aquifer was impacted. And, you know, as a civilian before this, I didn't really understand I guess, essentially where the water came from, you know, you know, it comes to your house through pipes. And unfortunately, over the past two years, I've had to dig down deep and learn like those pipes are connected to a shaft. The shaft is connected to the wells and aquifer and the aquifer is all just this. It's one bowl of water. And so on this island, we all have to be concerned about what is in that bowl of water. You know, um, I'm very grateful for the Board of Water Supply looking out for what is in that bowl of water. And I just hope everybody else continues to just keep on watch because we do know there is contamination and we need to figure out what to do with that. Yeah, and there are a handful of families who had their water tested recently and they found petroleum products in there and they're saying it's not the jet fuel from Red Hill, but it is contamination from fuel from somewhere at some point. At some point, I don't even care where it comes from. I don't want fuel of any type in my water, and neither does anybody else. So I think they like to play on words a lot. They try to make a difference between jet fuel and petroleum hydrocarbons, saying it's not the same thing. It's like, okay, we'll call it fresh jet fuel, call it degraded jet fuel, call it petroleum hydrocarbon, call it TPH, call it whatever you want. None of us want fuel in any form, old or new, degraded or fresh, in any form in our water. It is still being detected. We have seen that through the long-term monitoring results that are available online. We can see that it continues to pop up in various neighborhoods across those water lines. I think one thing people don't understand is those water lines also extend into the community. There should be more protection for us. I'll just put it that way. That was Lacey Quintero, whose family moved off base after discovering fuel in their drinking water. We hope to learn more about the military's next phase of removing the fuel at Red Hill at a news conference later today. This Saturday, HPR presents Sean Conley, live at the Atherton Performing Arts Studio. Conley is the principal bassist for the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. He is also a member of globally acclaimed groups like Silk Road Ensemble and The Knights. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're focusing in on a Pacific Northwest town and a river with Hawaii ties. 
Both were named after a six-foot-tall native Hawaiian born on Maui around 1811. The fur trading vessels that stopped in the islands enticed the youth to jump on a ship and seek adventure and employment across the sea. Employed by the Hudson Bay Company, he worked at their regional forts being a jack-of-all-trades. He built structures, prepared furs and wool for shipment, herded sheep, and got along with everybody he met in the pioneering circles. By the mid-1830s, he had settled in what is now Washington State and started a new life with one of uh, with the one of the native tribes. He married Mary Martin, the daughter of one of the Nisqually chiefs, and built a home near what is now Tumwater, Washington. Eventually, he moved to his favorite fishing spot at the mouth of the river, and the settlement in the area became a town that now bears his name. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of that town? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareedHawaii.com. A new report from the State Energy Office has some sobering news related to our state's goal of achieving 100% clean energy by 2045. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman pote joins us this morning. Hi, Savannah. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. So, <laughs> how are we doing? How's our progress report? Um, I think we're, we're not getting an A. I'll start with <laughs> okay. that. So, the Hawaii State Energy Office released this report. It's available to the public. It's 357 pages. And basically what it says is we need to start playing catch up if we're going to ditch fossil fuels by 2045. And the way that the State Energy Office broke this down was they looked at what we're doing currently. So our business as usual scenario which includes our renewable portfolio standards. So the expectation that our electrical grid will transition to 100% renewable energies. And they said, based on that, how close are we gonna get to being carbon neutral in the next two decades? And that only gets us to 54, a 54% reduction in carbon emissions by 2045, well short of the 100% that we're going for. Okay, not so good then. So what do we need to do? Well, there are different pathways, scenario one, two, and three, that the report lays out to try to get us, to try to basically make up ground and get us back on track to these goals. And these scenarios emphasize different strategies, but they're all very aggressive. So some of the things you'll see in there are the idea of a gas car ban in the next decade, heavy investments in sustainable aviation fuel in the next five years, and then lots of carbon sequestration. So ways to actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere, be it by increased plantation of trees or investment in carbon sinks or actual technology, which doesn't really exist yet, that could pull carbon out of the air. She's from the energy office. And she was the head of the team who was preparing this report. And she said, yes, we know it's aggressive, but we're at this critical juncture in our fight against the climate. And if we're serious about carbon neutrality, we need to invest in some of these areas. And she did point to one area that's a little bit more low-hanging fruit than some of the other things in the report, and that's energy efficiency. So making sure that we're not using more power than we need. So I like to say energy efficiency starts with conservation. So that's turning off lights. That's the simple things like closing the door and not letting the AC blow out full blast. 
But then it goes into also technology switches, such as taking your old incandescent light bulbs and switching them to LEDs. That's huge. It can also be, you know, your appliances on the residential side. On the commercial sides, it's, you know, making sure your HVAC systems or are up to date or you have, you know, heat pump water heaters. These are all things that can really reduce the load on our energy grid. And as a result, less renewable energy needs to be built out if we really are aggressive with energy efficiency. Okay, so we, sh- we shouldn't be wasteful. No, we shouldn't. And, and I want to talk a little bit about kind of the big picture that Schaefer is suggesting. suggesting. She's saying that like if we're able to cut demand significantly, that might mean that we need fewer utility-scale energy projects. I brought this idea to Rep. Nicole Lowen, who has proposed a number of common sense bills on energy efficiency. And she said, well, overall demand is still going to increase as everything electrifies, but we should look into energy efficiency in order to balance out demand. And one of the bills that she proposed last year along those lines that was enacted into law bans the sale of certain inefficient fluorescent lights. And just one of those easy things we can do, taking these bulbs off the shelves. Here's Lowen. It's really, it's really a win-win, the energy efficiency stuff. And, and it just makes sense to dig deep on it because we're kind of coming from a, a past that where energy was relatively cheap, especially on the mainland. But in Hawaii, we're stuck with products developed on the mainland. But, you know, we have this whole kind of industrial revolution history of electricity being relatively cheap and not a ton of thought going into how to be really careful with how we use it. So there's a lot of gains we can make by thinking of it differently. There's still a lot of like digging deeper we can do on energy efficiency without, I think, having to sacrifice anything in terms of lifestyle or things like that. Yeah, it really makes you think. I mean, I've got a bunch of those fluorescent uh, tubes and I just wonder, gosh, they haven't gone out for a long time, but maybe they need to be replaced with something more efficient. It's definitely a good place to start. Um, And that'll help us get to our energy efficiency goals for 2030. But something interesting about our energy portfolio targets is they don't extend to 2045 like many of our other clean energy goals do. So Lowen proposed another bill, HB 193, last session that was supposed to extend that portfolio all the way out to 2045. And that, that bill almost almost passed, (laughs) Um, but it died just within inches of the finish line. Blue Planet advocated for this bill also, so I spoke with Executive Director Melissa Miyashiro about why it was important. A key opportunity for achieving our energy efficiency goals is ensuring that we're all aligned from a planning perspective. So the renewable portfolio standard that requires electricity to be uh, 100% renewable by 2045. That was updated to reflect that 2045 date, but our energy efficiency target uh, stops in 2030. As the decarbonization report mentions, we need to be thinking about energy efficiency as a central question in our planning. So we'd really like to see that energy efficiency target Uh, extended to 2045 to match the 100% goal. So we really need benchmarks. Right, right. So that everyone can be aligned and then understand what we're working towards. Because this is ultimately what that report is about. It's something that the lawmakers can use as guidance in what sort of legislation they want to pass to get us closer to carbon neutrality by 2045. And the energy stakeholders that I spoke to said this report in, report is really important, but it's really just a starting point for the conversation on how is the state going to reduce carbon emissions in areas other than our energy grid. Like it's a hefty document to be sure. It's a hundred. It's three hundred and fifty-seven pages. But for instance, Michael Colon, the director of energy for the Ulupono Initiative, says there are even more areas we can consider when it comes to decarbonization. I really commend the state energy office for the work, but I do believe that this is a first, you know, version one, and we'll continue to do this over years to revisit. 
And so, yeah, I think there are some areas um, that could bear more emphasis, one of which is water systems. Um, the There is talk about wastewater treatment and the, um, you know, and kind of the cost of wastewater treatment, which is very important, but also around the state, we have a lot of water systems, uh, pumping water for drinking water. Um, and those systems all are very energy intensive as well. Um, some are privately owned uh, companies. They're all struggling with energy costs and energy impacts. And there's a very close nexus between water usage, water delivery, um, and energy. Yeah, so there's a lot to think about. Absolutely. And now it's just a matter, matter of whether or not lawmakers heed the recommendations of the report and build on it or push the can down the road again. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote. We'll have a link to that State Energy Office's report on the conversation page of our website after the show. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Carlene Montes de Oca. I'm the author of Dog as My Doctor, Cat as My Nurse. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how our dogs and cats can help enhance our health and our well-being. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Kahala Hotel and Resort, celebrating its 60th anniversary, committed to Oahu, working with the community and local nonprofits to help preserve the land, ocean, and culture for the coming decades. Kahalaresort.com. The 2024 legislative session opens tomorrow, and as always, education is a priority for many lawmakers. Here to give us a preview of some of the issues they'll uh, look to address is HPR reporter Cassie Ardonio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me this morning. Yes, so what do we need to focus on this session? Right now, the public can expect a heavy focus on the recovery of Lahaina schools due to the August 8th wildfire. And last year, the state house formed six working groups that were made to craft legislation on wildfire prevention. And of that panel, the school's working group met with, met with frustrated parents and educators. And one of the main concerns that were brought up was publicizing and establishing evacuation plans for public schools. I spoke with Representative Trish LaChica, who's the vice chair of the House Education Committee, and she was also a part of that working group. She said the recovery of Lahaina schools is a top priority this coming session, and we can ex expect a bill that would address concerns over the DOE's evacuation plan. So there will be a bill as part of the House bipartisan package for the Lahaina fires that's coming specifically from the school's working group. And it would be to require the Department of Education to establish comprehensive evacuation and communication plans for all emergencies, including wildfires. Specifically, we want to do three things. We want the Department of Education to grant public access to the plans so that the broader public has access to this information. And the second one is to have the schools to have this evacuation communication plan during the emergency. So how do we send the information and how do we receive information in the event of another evacuation? And then finally, we want the DOE to collaborate with the Department of Transportation to assess all school campuses to determine if there are sufficient emergency evacuation routes for each campus. Yeah, really good time to take stock of where everybody is. And especially when you're looking at all the Lahaina schools, one elementary school burnt down on Front Street, and there's still kind of discussion of 
when that original school is going to be rebuilt right now the students and educators will be relocated to another facility but going back to the evacuation plan we did do a story last year around maybe october september about there was no evacuation plans for wildfires or brush fires but there were evacuation plans for other natural disasters talking to deputy superintendent kurt otoguro he said there were disaster plans for tsunami or missile alerts or even building fires but none for brush fires and he he did say um, watching those Board of Education meetings and those legislative info briefings from December to January, a lot of the evacuation plans keeps getting brought up, but there were also issues and the Department of Education, they're not going to comment on the bill until the bill actually comes out in full detail and you know how bills work. It's going to be um, is going to be kind of like tinkered a little bit throughout mm-hmm. the session and the language may change but what they one of the concerns that the department had from previous board meetings was that um, some of those evacuation plans also has an active shooter drill so imagine having that publicized and then that might get into the wrong hands so now the lawmakers will have to figure out what the language is going to look like what the evacuation plan what are they asking the department of education going forward so those were the concerns um, that was leading up to this type of legislation and another issue is actually transportation so last year the doe also nixed uh, more bus routes that impacted 14 schools on oahu and Kauai. and while hawaii isn't unique to the bus driver shortage it also impacted local students so Speaking to Trish LaChica, she also mentioned that Pearl City students would have to walk a mile to the nearest bus stop despite having free holo cards. I knew how difficult it would be because one of my schools that were affected was Pearl City High School. And the kids that resided in my district that belonged to the school, you know, it was really disruptive because of the commute that it would have to entail because, you know, students were asked to take the city bus. And there were no, for at least for one of my communities, Coleridge, we didn't have a bus stop. So it had required walking a mile to the nearest bus stop to hop on a bus, transfer to a second bus, and then kind of go, you know, uphill to Pearl City High School and then walk another quarter mile or or so to get to the campus. It was like an hour and a half one way. And I know that, you know, our situation here in Hawaii with the school bus driver shortage is, is not unique to us. I know that across the nation, we're experiencing workforce shortages across the board, but not being able to address this issue will impact, continue to impact thousands of students across the state because it disrupts their school schedule and eventually their academic performance. So there will be more proposals this session to address the driver shortage. And I am personally introducing a couple bills. Yeah, driver shortage, that was a big deal during that pandemic. Just amazing. And one of the measures that she is drafting would authorize using motor coaches, small buses, and vans for transporting transporting students until more bus drivers are hired. But that's going to be, it's still in the drafting phase. And we know that the bills, the cutoff date is going to be sometime next week. But for the bipartisan package or caucus bills, I think the cutoff is actually this Friday. Okay, all right. But, uh, yeah, we'll uh, keep a lookout for these bills. But, again, the focus, um, Lahaina schools in particular. All right, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio with a preview of the education issues that lawmakers will look to address during the 2024 legislative session. This is Sabrina Tavernisi, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look at the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. Some companies have downsized their office footprints, but having less space can come at a cost. They want to use that space to collaborate, but it's not available. Or when they come in, there's no place for them to sit. 
they're not going to tolerate that for very long. I'm Kimberly Adams, the return to a smaller office, next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Now it's time to settle on the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. We took you across the ocean in search of a Pacific Northwest town and river name for a 19th century Native Hawaiian. During the early 1800s, large numbers of islanders were recruited to work as ship deckhands and apply their skills on the water in the fur trade. The man we're spotlighting today was born in Kula Maui. He signed with the Hudson's a Bay Company in 1837 and remained on the company payroll for nearly three decades. He established a life on the continent. He settled in what is now Cowlitz County, Washington, at the mouth of a river. He married the daughter of the chief of the local Indian tribe, the Nisqually, and he spent his days hunting, fishing, and trapping. According to one historical account, the area soon became recognized as John Kalama's domain. The town that bears his name in Washington state is pronounced Kalama by the residents, and the Kalama River runs about two miles from the town. Fun fact, the first movie in the vampire series Twilight was filmed at Kalama High School. And our winner today, dear friend John Ray from the Big Island. We had lots of calls of people who had been to the town. Kalama, Kalama. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil discourse during polarized times. It couldn't be more timely following the Iowa caucuses weekend and coming off the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and the recent three-year anniversary of the siege on the Capitol. Hawaii is to be the first stop for a series of talks by National Civil Discourse speaker Tim Schaefer. So I am at the Biden School of Public Policy and Administration, which I always kind of joke is my day job. I serve as the director of an initiative called the SNF Ithaca Initiative, and am also the yeah the inaugural chair, um, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation Chair of Civil Discourse there. And and I'll, if I can just say quickly, the the initiative was launched a couple years ago in recognition of the need for us, especially on college campuses, but not limited to this place that we need to help prepare particularly young people but all of us with the the kind of skills the ability to engage one another constructively whether it's in whatever role it might be right for us we're a a school of public policy and administration so we're preparing um, people to to be uh, policy analysts people in public office running nonprofits, all sorts of things but one of the most exciting things for me is I get to be in a classroom every semester with literally dozens of students across the board. So nursing students, business students, engineers, English majors, whatever they might be, uh, learning some of these skills. And then the National Institute for Civil Discourse has uh, long been a part of who I am and what I get to do. And, and I think one of the, the most significant things about that is it was founded after Representative Gabby Giffords was shot when she was trying to meet her constituents and um, kind of on the corner uh, in the parking lot of a, of a local grocery store in Tucson, Arizona, a number of years ago. And the, the Institute, the National Institute, was created as a, as a response uh, to that tragic moment of that loss of life and violence and a recognition that we need across the board to do better. And so I've been very honored to, to be to be part of that. And so every day, <laughs> seemingly all the time, I'm talking and doing this kind of work, talking about this work and doing this kind of work. Well, you know, how did we get to this place where our views are so polarized and both sides are so impassioned that sometimes things get violent? Violence is, I think, a, a horrific outcome that sometimes uh, emerges from political differences. And I think there's a, a, a famous old book on, on some of this work by a, an English scholar by the name of Bernard Crick on democracy. And his point is democracy is something we need to do because the alternative is violence. And I think uh, what we've seen, you know, we just uh, had the third anniversary of, of January 6th. And 
I think for us in the United States, that right now stands out as one of these uh, most dramatic moments of what happens when that rhetoric becomes reality, at least for some people. And I think the recognition that our words carry a lot, especially those with positions of power and influence, and it is not how we want to be, and that's not how we should be. And I think to your question, we've been moving in these ways, though, uh, for quite a while because uh, of the kind of uh, extreme way in which we, I think, have a lack of kind of public discourse. How do we have serious disagreements with one another, whether we're members of Congress or just people in a community? Uh, how do we have serious disagreements and yet not demonize uh, the other, right? How do we not see them just simply as somebody with another set of views or values, someone who has a preference for a marginal tax rate a little bit higher or a little bit lower, uh, for example? Um, how do we how do we have that kind of disagreement rather than having what is referred to as affective polarization, which is seeing the other side as an enemy there to be defeated? And I think if we think about the last few years, not just the last election cycle, well before that, this has been a default that we we talk about the, the, the downfall of society if so-and-so wins. Oftentimes that kind of uh, ratcheting up of how we talk and then how we see elites on, on television or hear them on the radio or, or read about it on social media, wherever it might be, it's really difficult then to step back from that intensity. So this is, I think, a recognition that we need to do this kind of work differently because it does potentially lead uh, to serious consequences and potentially the loss of life. And, you know, I was talking to someone who's involved in mediation and you know, we were having a discussion about the two sides just really need to listen to each other and respect that, yeah, they may not eye to eye on, on a particular point, but to respect that point of view, that different point of view. Yeah, it's it's about listening with, you know, legitimately listening for understanding is a, is a really important approach, right, that we might learn something that we haven't known before, like a degree of humility, right, becomes really important. Um, but I will say, there is a place where we need to think about things like empathy and humility as being these uh, kind of cornerstones. But we also need to, to have a recognition that we have deeply held positions for a variety of reasons and, and not just to kind of give that up. I think sometimes people who are uh, maybe skeptical of this idea of dialogue, especially when there's deep disagreement, is that I, I believe X, Y, and Z, and I don't want to just give that up to find some some squishy middle, and I don't think that's the expectation, nor should it be, when there are places that we can find common ground, when we can engage our differences, we need to be able to articulate and understand where we do have commonality, but also to recognize that that's not always going to be a lot. That might just be a little bit, right? Where is that overlap? I know we're on the radio, so I can't draw this, but thinking of those kind of Venn diagrams, right? Sometimes the overlap is a little bit, and sometimes it's more, or it could be more. But if we're not willing to even kind of entertain that possibility, then we will never know. But I will say, uh, and I think this is important, to engage in these kind of constructive conversations, in these dialogues, at whatever scale it might be, you have to be willing to engage in a, in, a, in a fair way. What I mean by that is you don't always get to win, and you have to kind of follow the same sets of rules, so the ground rules become really important. And I think that's one of the, the big challenges uh, that many people observe or maybe experience is that I'm following the rules and they're not. And that, and that gives, um, I think, people a legitimate reason to feel hesitant to, to maybe show back up in those kind of conversations because they've been negatively affected in the past because of, of people not basically playing by the rules. You know, one thing that struck me, you know, over the past several years is just the, the vulgarity of the discussion you know, the conversations that people are having, and it's scary. I think that's true, and, and I, I think one aspect of thinking about this is, you know, it's about having a certain kind of, and I talk about this with my, my wife and I talk about this at, at the dinner table with our kids, of like, you know, there's a certain way to act, right? How do we sit down together? How do we listen to each other? How do we, in a basic way, be courteous with each other? 
And that's also, I think there's an important point here, and my students often raise this in the classroom of like, you know, but isn't this just a way in which we, you know, certain people get marginalized, their voices are shut out. And I think there are, are, are kind of thin notions of what civility or civil discourse might mean or look like. And then there are more robust ways of thinking about this, this sense of kind of manners and rules playing an important role, but that's not all it is. It also needs to be this more robust sense of responsiveness or responsibility with one another. Um, some colleagues who wrote a book a few years ago called Beyond Civility, actually, they used some categories like weak civility, which was, you know, following rules and norms versus what they called strong civility, which was now, this more robust engagement of differences that included things like dialogue and deliberation, you know, the, listen, the deep listening with one another, as we were talking about a moment ago, but also confrontation and protest and disobedience, civil disobedience. And so I think that's an important thing for, for people to be thinking about is that civil discourse is not this absolutely passive approach, right? There is an absolute appropriateness appropriateness in certain moments to uh, to challenge and to confront. But if that's all we do, then we miss the opportunity to really engage and listen. And that's when the, the kind of rules, the manners, that the courteous approach to one another becomes really important as well. Yeah, because, you know, we've watched how uh, the rhetoric, the choice of words, you know, emboldens, you know, one side to uh, maybe cross the line. Absolutely. The, the way in which, and this is um, again, I think uh, the, the thing to, to be mindful of, we can think about words that inspire and influence can be amazingly uh, powerful and influential in, um, in, positive, in positive ways, right? We're, we're about to celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in our ways that we do in, in the United States. And for me, it's often this true recognition of what's possible when we when we use words to inspire and to influence people's actions in a collective way. Uh, but we can also see the ways in which words are used to inspire for 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 violence, for for an abusive uh, kind of approach to our shared public life. And so you know the the sticks and stones um, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. i I, I always take a little bit of a pause with that, because I think we have to be really sensitive to not just what are the actions, but what are the things that inspire and influence those things, whether they are good or bad. And I think, unfortunately, what we're experiencing um, in the United States and globally is sometimes that bad. That was Tim Schaefer from the University of Delaware, who was to speak at Chaminade University tomorrow. Unfortunately, bad weather has forced cancellation of flights, and officials are hoping to reschedule the event. Uh, Schaefer was to speak on civil discourse in partisan times, coming off the holiday marking the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and the third anniversary of the siege on the nation's capital. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we hear more about a new showcase for local up-and-coming musicians at the Manoa Valley Theater. We welcome feedback. Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The conversation is available as a podcast on our website or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 